Thank you so much, Tim, for that prayer of supplication. And again, thank you all for being here today. And I'm humbled and honored to have the privilege to open up God's Word before you and pray that God instills in all of us a hunger for truth and for His Word and for righteousness in Christ and pray that you and I grow as we uh, delve into God's Word together. And uh, I am preaching a series of messages in the Gospel of Luke that I've simply entitled, Follow Me, because the essence of what Jesus is appealing to the people is that they would understand that God is in their midst and that He is, is proclaiming to them the glorious news that the kingdom of God certainly is housed in heaven, but has come to earth by His own Son. And so, for all of us, at some point in our lives, we have to consider the call the call of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to us to come out of the world, to be transformed divinely and supernaturally by the amazing grace of God and the faith that God gives us to put our trust in Jesus Christ and through that glorious transformation to be made a part of the eternal kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Amen? Uh, we live here on the earth and we may live in different parts of the earth or different parts of the country but as children of God we are citizens of God's eternal kingdom and and just as we will celebrate this afternoon for sister Pat who is there present and and, and is experiencing the glory of the heavenly realm of God that kingdom there we are in the kingdom of God here and so Jesus is 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 teaching as we have seen, as we followed here in chapter 6 in the Gospel of Luke, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn there. Because Jesus has just come down from the tops of the mountain there to a, a level place, a plain, if you will. Some call this the message of the, the, uh, uh, of the plains, the, uh, the um, I'm trying to think, uh, the Sermon of the Plain. Thank you. Yes. And because it's on a level place. But there gathered with the Lord Jesus is a concentric arrangement of peoples making up a multitude, if you will. At the heart of that is his disciples. Uh, well, better said, the 12 apostles that he has just appointed. They make up the heart, the closest group to Jesus. And then around them would be the concentric arrangement of those who are disciples who have made decisions to follow Christ. Uh, and we talked about that. And then there are the, the, the multitude, the horde of those who are present because Jesus is working miracles. He's preaching a powerful, authoritative messages like nobody's heard. And so curiosity seekers, even as you would find today, are there. And so Jesus is, is, is preaching this message here, this message on the plain, if you will, or actually it's on the mountain, but just on a level spot, a plateau there. And in this message, the Lord is going to push the envelope. He's going he's to test the limits of tolerance, as does most of his preaching when he reveals to people the glorious truth of God's kingdom. You know, we used to sing that little chorus, they will know we are Christians by our love. And I used to enjoy singing that and going through the rounds with it, you know. And, and as I look at the, the message, as I look at the text that we're examining today and think about that little course, I, I would have to submit that the they will know we are Christians 
would be the, the, the unsaved populace of, of non-believers around us. They, they, amongst all the other things that they will detect about us that says we are followers of Christ, we are children of God, it is the way we love. And Jesus is going to expound on that in the message today. But holding your place at Luke chapter 6, I would like to invite you to turn with me over quickly to over to John chapter 17. Those of you that are following in the uh, Equip Hour study with uh, Brother uh, Tim Martin on Sunday evenings, then you will probably be very familiar with this passage. But I want you to see something as Jesus is praying this glorious, wonderful, I call Lord's prayers. He's talking to the Father on behalf of his disciples. I just want us to see the context here in which Jesus is, is setting that the message that I'm preaching this morning certainly applies to. Because Jesus is praying for his disciples. If you are looking in John 17 verse 11. Jesus is saying to the Father, Now I am no longer in the world, but these, speaking of his disciples, are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them, uh, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may know that, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And I would just submit to you this morning that as Jesus is praying this wonderful prayer to the Father on behalf of his disciples, he's looking down through time. He, he sees the context in which his disciples will be attempting to, to share the good news of the gospel, to, to plant this new church, and, and to, uh, if you will, further the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus understands that this is a world that will hate his followers as they hate him. And, and Jesus understands that, he, that his followers are being compelled by his word, his command, but also by the Holy Spirit to go out into the world. But let me tell you something. Jesus is praying that prayer for you and me. For those of us who have, who have opted by faith and commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that the Lord is compelling us by his word and by his Holy Spirit out of the comfort zones of our homes and our churches and out into a relatively hostile humanistic world that hates what we stand for for the most part. And the Lord describes true disciples as those who are willing to go. And as they go, they're willing to get to know those people who are out there living in the darkness of rebellion and don't have Jesus Christ. And as we get to know them, we are compelled by the Spirit of God to show them the truth of God's love and the wonderful good news of the gospel that opens up the, the, the opportunity for them to come and to be 
drafted from the kingdom of darkness and Satan's domain into the kingdom of light, into the glorious eternal family of God. To be transformed from being those who are lost and hopeless and hellbound to being those who are children of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and who have the wonderful gift of eternal life. And this is what God is compelling His disciples, you and me, to do. The world in which we live desperately needs to experience this love. I'll take you back to Luke's Gospel now, chapter 6. And we pick up there in verse 27. I want you to see some things about the way that we love the world. Now, we don't love the world in terms of loving the things of the world. We're not attracted to those sinful elements of the world that would cause us to, to, to compromise. Now, when I talk about loving the world, I'm talking about loving those who are in the world, who are not of Christ, who need Jesus. And Jesus is expounding upon the elements of this love that, that spells out the characteristics of true, authentic believers, followers of Christ. And so we start reading there in chapter 6, verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. First of all, I want you to see authentic Christians, authentic Christians freely practice God's love. When Jesus begins there in verse 27, he, when He says, I say to you, I can just envision His eyes are riveted on the twelve. The twelve apostles that he has just appointed who will be carrying on his teachings and will, will assume the leadership of the new church that will be birthed at Pentecost there in Jerusalem. Jesus' eyes are on his disciples, especially his apostles, because he is challenging them to reach out to adv their adversaries with what will be radical love. Love like the world has never known or experienced. One of the characteristics of the gospel writer Luke is he's organized. And you'll notice that he organizes by themes and he organizes by words as opposed to say Matthew who organizes chronologically and some of the other gospel writers. But first of all, he's showing us that authentic Christians who freely practice the, the love of God are, are willing to reach out, to take the initiative to reach out to even their adversaries with a radical love. How do we know that? Because Jesus tells us right here. He says, love your enemies. The teachings of that day, the popular rabbinical teachings and Judaism, was that you love your neighbors, but you hate your enemies. And Jesus is saying here, in a radical way, no, no, the love that I am posing to you, which are the, is, is characteristic of the standards of the kingdom of God, is a love that enables you to love even those who are your enemies. 
He says, love them and do good to those who hate you. Now some of us may be thinking, you know, that, that's good teaching that Jesus is laying on those apostles at that, back at that time. They, they need to hear that. Wake up, Christians. He's saying it to 21st century Christians as well as 1st century Christians. This is the way in which we reveal to people around us that we are indeed wonderfully, gloriously, supernaturally transformed. We're not of this world. We're of a kingdom that is not of this world. And hence, by Christ, we can exhibit love towards even those who are our enemies. And we can do good to those who hate us. Jesus goes on to say, bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. So you get four commands right off the bat. Right, right in a row. Love, do good, bless, and pray for this is not what the Pharisees have been teaching. This is certainly not what the, the rabbis of that day have been teaching. They've been saying, hey, hate your enemies. If somebody is mean to you, you just turn around and give them what, what they gave you. And, and so this is something that is catching the attention of people. Not only is he challenging us and his disciples then to reach out to adversaries with a radical love, but he's also challenging us, calling us, compelling us to respond to sinful injustices, not with anger, not with spite, not with vengeance, but with love. And just as he gave us four commands, in verses 27 and 28, we look at verse 29, and he gives us four examples. Four examples of what he's talking about in responding to sinful injustices. First of all, he says, To him who strikes you on the one cheek, Offer the other also. You know, it's interesting because in that culture, when a person slaps a person in the face, it's not so much for bodily injury. It's really for personal insult. And you may recall that our Lord, who, who not only taught this, but He modeled this perfectly. When Jesus was on trial, that kangaroo court before the high priest Caiaphas and Annas, you may recall when he didn't answer the high priest like the high priest wanted him to, one of the officials standing near him reached out and slapped him across the face. And so typically in that day and time, a person who's been injured by insult would retaliate and Jesus is saying, no, that's not how kingdom citizens respond. When somebody insults you, he says, do as much as turn the other cheek and demonstrate a, a, a love that they can't even comprehend. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. You know, you have to understand the, the dress of that day. Because back in the first century, Palestine, in the regions that Jesus is circulating in, the people of that day had two basic parts to their, to their dress. The, the outer garment was a, a heavier, uh, almost like a robe or, or a blanket that a person wrapped around them. And it was, it was something that would provide warmth and comfort. And they used it not only to, to wear on the outside, but also at night when they would lay down. That was their cover. Imagine you walking around with your bed comforter or your quilt wrapped around you. But you know, that was an important garb to have. And Jesus is saying, if someone wants to take that, he says, go ahead and give them your underwear too. I, I, maybe not to that extent. But there, there were usually softer uh, garments that were worn under the cloak 
that you would wear. And, uh, and he was saying, look, when somebody comes to take away your cloak, look, by, compelled by divine love, be willing to say, here, yeah, you can take that. But, but also here. And, and I don't know how that would work out by taking off the inner garments too. But understand, that, that was a serious matter in Jewish culture. Going back to the law of Moses, even, even in Exodus, where in, in the book of Exodus, it talks about, if a, in Exodus 22, 26, if a person, for some reason, gets a man's cloak, maybe it's, it's given as a guarantee, maybe in a wager or something like that. The law of Moses required the person who acquired that cloak to give it back by sundown. The law required that because a person needed it to cover themselves when they laid down at night. But Jesus doesn't even say that. Jesus doesn't apply even the law of Moses there. He says, no, the law of God, the kingdom of God says, just give them everything. This is radical to the people of that day. So Jesus is saying, respond to sinful injustices with love. Look at verse 30 with me. Jesus says, give to everyone who asks of you. And of course, he's talking about in that time, people would, would borrow money. And, you know, if a person asks you for something. But the implication here, Jesus is basically saying, even you know, today, if somebody comes to you and, and, and wants to borrow some money, you, you, you want to know a little bit something about their credit background and, and their repayment patterns. You don't just hand out, delve out money, uh, you know, freely. You want to have an assurance that somehow you're going to get that money back. But the implication that Jesus is giving here is that whoever, he says, give to everyone. You don't have to do a credit check on them. If they need it, give it to them. But look what he does. He goes on beyond that with the understanding that even when you loan to some people, and you know as well as I do, it happened then, it happens now. People will come and say, hey, can you loan me some money? Can you loan me 10, 20? And, you know, I'll, I'll give it back. I'll, I'll have it. You'll, you'll get it by the end of the week. Six months later, you had not seen them or your money. You know? And, and Jesus is saying, don't gauge people, don't gauge your generosity upon the assurance that you have they can give back to you. Just give it. Freely give it. And He goes on to push the matter just a little bit further because he talks about there in verse 30 and from him who takes away your goods do not ask them back a person that steals not just coming and asking you but even somebody that steals from you he says you don't have to seek vengeance and retaliation against them now realize these are tough principles here and let me just say this does not preclude legal procedures. It's, Jesus is not saying just stand there and be a, 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 you know, an unwitting victim. It, you can defend yourself. You know, Jesus is not saying when he says turn your cheek, turn the other cheek. He's not saying don't stand, you don't have to stand there and let somebody pulverize you. He's not precluding a person's right to defend themselves if the purpose of the perpetrator is to do great bodily harm to you. But in cases of in, insult, he says, just turn the other cheek. If somebody asks you for money, he says, give it to them. Don't, don't be asking a bunch of questions. Let it go. And even if somebody takes something from you, like with the cloak, he says, let them have it. But citizens of that day 
certainly had legal rights if subjected to seriously injurious situations. But this radical teaching that Jesus is putting out before. Now I could just stop here because I know that this has probably gone against the grain of, many, of the way that many of us think even as Christians, as Bible-believing, church-going Christians. Probably there's a part of me and a part of you that says, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. I, I love you and I love people. But Lord, you're asking some very tough things. You're telling us, you're commanding us to do some things that is, is just not natural. Bingo. Because Jesus is not talking about the natural realm. He's not try, he's talking about trying to relate to people through our normal uh, emotional and physical makeup. He's talking about allowing the Spirit of God to work through us. Look at verse 31 because here so many people identify this as, as Jesus' version of the quote golden rule. In verse 31 Jesus says, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. I want you to note that Jesus gives a positive spin to this. And that's important because the golden rule, as we oftentimes call it, is not just a Christian thing. It's been found in other cultures, in Buddhism and in Hinduism, in other faith traditions, uh, Greek philosophies. They have a version of the, of the golden rule too. But the interesting thing is Jesus proposes a version of the golden rule very contrast to what the world offered. Because all of these faith traditions and philosophies would cast the golden rule in a negative light. Something like, don't do to others that which you don't want them to do to you. That's not the way Jesus phrased it. Look closely again. He says, don't, be, don't just be on the, on the defensive and reactive and, and, and trying to protect yourself he says, be positive. Be proactive. Be affirming. He says, he says, and just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. That opens up a whole new gate, brothers and sisters. Because that enables you and me to not just be thinking about the possible bad things that people could do to us and, and therefore not doing it because we don't want them to do it to us. But Jesus is opening up a kingdom door of opportunities for us to impact the lives of others in a positive way, in a loving way, in a Christ-like way. Listen, how, how often do you stop and think about ways that you could touch the life of another person in a good and a loving way, in a positive way? Think about the ways that you would like for people to express love and respect and care to you. And then go out of your way to do that even for those who you don't even know. Strangers. Or people who have maybe claimed to be your enemy or your adversary. So Jesus is proposing that authentic Christians freely practice God's love. But as we move further in verse 32, I want you to also see that he helps his followers then and now to understand that kingdom citizens are characterized by kingdom love. Jesus Christ is the king of glory. 
He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And what he's doing is giving his followers a glimpse into the kingdom that he has been preaching from the time he started his earthly ministry. You may recall after his baptism by John in the Jordan River, Jesus went forth preaching, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's revealing the, the, the wonderful Radical characteristics of this kingdom and the behavior and the attitudes of those who are citizens of this kingdom. And in this passage, he helps us to see the Lord calls his disciples to exceed the selfish, reciprocal love of the lost. We are called to go beyond the typical selfish, self-centered, reciprocal love of the lost. Lost people love. Lost people do good things. We don't have the corner market on love and good and all of that. But let's explore what Jesus is talking about. Look at verse 32. He says, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. As we look at this passage here, Jesus is calling His disciples to practice a, a type of love that goes far beyond what the unbelievers are practicing out there. Unbelievers are capable of loving. They're, un they're, they're capable of doing good things. They're capable of giving, but in self-serving ways. Jesus said, if you do these things, what, what credit is it to you? How have you impressed the heart of God when you're simply going by the standards of the world? Listen, Christians settling for worldly attitudes lose the rewards of a supernatural witness. How is it that with you doing no more than unregenerate people would do in loving and giving, how is that going to proclaim that you are indeed a child of God? It's reminiscent of what Jesus was teaching back in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 when he's confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees about their practices of almsgiving. Not only that, but also in praying. And not only that, but in fasting. All through that chapter in chapter 6, Jesus is saying, don't, don't give alms as these religious leaders are doing because all they're doing is to attract the attention of people. They want the glory of man. Don't, don't be engaged in praying on the corner with many, many words and, and, and these ornate prayers so, so as to attract the attention and the, and the praise and the glory of, of, of other people. He says, and when you fast, don't go out there and, and, and mess up your hair and wear old raggedy clothes and, 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 and have this sorrow look on your face so as to, to, to win the pity of others and, and the honor of others and the respect of others. In all three of those situations, Jesus said, they're doing that and they're getting their reward, 
But their reward is here. All the reward they're getting for their almsgiving and their fasting and their praying is here because they have not once moved the heart of God. God's not impressed with that. And so when Jesus is translating that over here, He says, sure the, the lost love, and, and sure they, they do good and, and, and things like that. But He says, you are to go beyond that standard. You are to love as the people of God. And here in verse 35 and 36, Jesus summarizes, He summarizes these expectations of kingdom citizens for his disciples then and for his disciples now. Look with me there in verse 35 and 36. Jesus says, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Did you get that? Your reward will be great. And he's not just talking about the reward that we get that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 3 where our works on this earth are tested by fire and, and, and whether they are stubbles and hay or whether they're gold. That's not the eternal reward he's talking about. He's saying the reward that comes in this life of knowing that you are loving people in an unselfish way, in a Christ-like way, in such a manner that it speaks volumes about who you are, people see that kind of radical, unselfish love, and they have to come to the conclusion, you're not normal. You're not like everybody else. There's something different about you. What enables you to love with that kind of love that you can love enemies, that you can give freely whether or not people give back to you? What enables you to do good with such a heart even towards those who spitefully use you? And then look what the... That's the reward that we get that Paul is, uh, that uh, Jesus is referring to there. He says, your reward will be great, verse 35, and you will be the sons of of the highest. For people somehow to look at your life and to look at your attitude and to look at the love that you exhibit and to see the uniqueness of it, to see the out of this worldliness of it, and to be able to put two and two together and say, they are the sons of God. And, and this, this name for God that Jesus uses here, the highest, El Elyon, used 50 times in the Scripture, speaks of the great sovereignty of God, the highest of the highest. And we are His children. And what a testimony. What a witness for people to say, there's something different about that person that you can't even explain by worldly terms. Surely they are children of God. And that is our reward, to live in this life in a manner that people can see your life and see your character and say that they are children of God. We should reflect the nature of our Father in Heaven. You know, when we talk about the love of God, we talk about His mercy. And as we look further... Jesus helps his disciples to see God's people manifest his love. One of the ways that we manifest his love is by also manifesting his mercy and manifesting his generosity. God is a God of wonderful mercy. Listen to the psalmist David in Psalm 103 when he shares these words about Jehovah. In 103 verse 8, 
He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Folks, that's mercy. When God doesn't give to us what we deserve, David understood that about his God, about Jehovah. God withholds what I deserve. David knew that better than anyone else. Nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Listen, David reminds us that God is a God of great mercy. So should we be as His children. And the Lord warns harshly against judging and condemning others. As we look what Jesus says, as we read further, look at verse 36. He says, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Verse 37, Judge not, and, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put, to get, put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. The Lord warns against harsh judgment and condemnation of others. Because that's not what we're in the world to do. Jesus made it very clear that He Himself... He Himself had the authority given to Him by the Father. He alone will judge. Now this does not preclude the ability of Christians and the responsibility of Christians to objectively reflect to people their sin. I mean, when you go to share the Gospel and you're talking to somebody, you know, you've got to help them to see. But not by your subjective personal opinion that they are sinners, but you need to help them to understand that according to the objective, eternal, infallible truth of the Word of God, all are sinners. It doesn't preclude Christians practicing biblical discipline to one another. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. You have a responsibility when you see a brother or sister that you claim to love in Christ and they have veered off in a path of, of unrepentant sin, you don't just stand back and fold your hands and, and say, well, well, that's, that's their business. That's their personal thing. No! You're not judging them when you come to them and confront them. You're doing it in love. Folks, discipline is an act of love. I thought I'd get all the kids saying amen at that point, but I guess they haven't really <laughs> caught on there. But it is. But it is. But we understand. Jesus gives these, He says, don't judge that you won't be judged. Don't condemn that you won't be condemned. So He gets two negatives, but then He comes back with two positives. He says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. And give, and it will be given to you. Not only are we seeking to impress the heart of our Father, 
But do you know when you relate to lost people, even those who might not really like you or like the whole idea of Christianity or the gospel or any of that, but if you live your life sincerely before them and you demonstrate to them that you're not judging them, you love them. Uh, you know, instead of beating them over the head with a King James Bible and saying, you're going to hell, you perverted you know, Philistine. <laughs> no, no. You don't judge them. You don't condemn them. You love them. And if you are willing to forgive them and they experience your forgiveness, you're just modeling the forgiveness of God. When you give freely to them, you're modeling the generosity of your Father in heaven. Who knows, but it might not even move the heart of a hardened sinner. So that in return, they won't judge you. They won't condemn you. They'd be willing to forgive you. Hey, listen, it has earthly ramifications as well. And Jesus is saying, this is who you are as citizens of the kingdom of God, as children of God. And through our forgiven and given spirit, the lost see our Lord. Jesus teaches so much about forgiveness, but it all originates out of the heart of God's wonderful mercy. Let me just share quickly two, two passages that speak to this. First in, in Titus in chapter 3. I want you to see as Paul describes the wonderful mercy of God. Chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts, pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according, get this, but according to His mercy He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, I jotted down in my Bible, amazing grace and awesome mercy. Don't ever overlook the glorious divine mercy of God and the impact that it has, has had on our... Do you understand the difference that God's mercy has made in our lives for eternity? And I like this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God... Nobody but God. But God, Paul says. Get a hold of this, he says to the Ephesian Christians in chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, I wrote, amazing grace, awesome mercy. But God, as He looked upon wretched, wicked rebellious, hell-bound sinners like Charlie Martin. God didn't see me through judgmental, condemning eyes. He saw me through the heart of mercy and love. And He reached out to me. And because of that, I have been made alive just as Christ is alive by the grace of God through my faith in Jesus Christ. And it is this wonderful mercy that we have experienced from God that compels us not only to forgive those who have wronged us as Christ has forgiven us, but I love his picture of generosity. You'd have to be a first century Palestinian living in the marketplace and dealing with a very honest merchant of integrity. Well, like going to Walmart. And, 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 and you're, they're, they're buying grain from you. And, and the picture, did, did you see what, how you described that? 
so vividly. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over with, uh, will be put together in your, into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Isn't this God? God's not stingy. He doesn't try to short us, does He? You know, I get so whipped sometimes I buy this big bag of potato chips. You know where I'm going. Thinking, oh, man, I think it's jam-packed with delicious chips all the way to the top. Rip it open and it's half empty. <laughs> I mean, come on! So deceitful, wicked merchants would probably try to fluff up what you're getting. Maybe put something to fill it up so that you're not getting a full peck of, of measure. Oh no, not with one who is a, is, is, is a, a man of honest integrity. He's going to pack it down. Then he's not only going to do that, he's going to shake it around, make sure all the grain kind of settles together good. Then he's going to pour more up on top of that, pack it down. And listen, he doesn't just trim it off at the top of the measure. No, no. He keeps piling it on. To, kind of like, the, you know, I love to go to uh, the ice cream shop and they don't just stop at the rim of the cone. You know, stack that thing up. That's how, listen, that's how God gives. He packs down. He shakes around. He even puts on top surplus so that when He pours it from that measure into the apron, into the bosom as Jesus is describing, it just, you get more than you bargained for. Folks, is that not the story of the Christian life? Don't we? We get more than we bargained for. So how in the world can we be judgmental? How in the world can we be condemning? How in the world can we be selfish and unforgiving towards others when we have been the recipients of the great and glorious, awesome mercy of God? We are children of God. We are citizens of this kingdom. We must live in a manner that people can see and see that we are not of this world. Oh, listen. They will know we are Christians by our love. Amen? Amen. Amen.